It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO James Nolan. James is an operating partner of Velocity Fund based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he grew up, and he currently serves as CEO for Inclinica. He started his pharmaceutical career at Neural Dow Pharmaceuticals, a division of Dow Chemical, and he did his undergraduate work at Villanova University and completed the executive program in marketing management at the University of Michigan. James Nolan, welcome into the corner office. It's a pleasure being here, Brent. That's great to have you here. And we kind of like to get things started where we talk a little bit about those early years and maybe we can, you know, hear a little bit about where you grew up and, you know, what your early family life was like. I um, was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on uh, uh, on the mountain that overlooks the city. It's the one that has the inclines that go up. In fact, um, my family has been here from the founding of Mount Washington. And when I grew up in a nine block radius, there were over 300 families that were cousins. So I had uh, quite an active and incredible um, family experience. I, I, I probably had an ideal childhood. How many generations does that go back in, in Pittsburgh, James? Eight or nine, I think. I mean, my, uh, my great-great-grandmothers had, we, we were actually, um, the Murphy side of the family were in the revolution. Terrific. And w- what was the original attraction in settling in Pittsburgh? Uh, like so many families, is that kind of where their families were when they came in? Or was it an attraction, you know, from an economic standpoint? Uh, Pittsburgh known for its mining, of course, in, in, the, in, in years past. I think the, the Nolan side, at least, um, came here for the economic reality. You know, Pittsburgh was the gateway to the West and was certainly the industrial center of the country at the time. And if you needed a job, that's where you went. And we had family that were in the Civil War. I mean, it, uh, we, we were kind of longstanding. Um, so I think, I think the economic realities of the time are why we were here. Tell me a little bit about your parents and brothers and sisters and you know, what kind of influence they had on you growing up. I was really fortunate. Um, I would say I had an ideal mom and dad. Um, my father is, uh, is an ex-Iwo Jima Marine and, um, and was a, he, he was a, he, he was in the he was a heavy equipment operator with the operating engineers and was very very active in the unions. My family has always been involved in labor. In fact, if you look at the original Teamsters Charter, you'll see my great great grandfather signed it like John Hancock did the Constitution. Um, so I came from a very blue collar background, a very very hardworking people. Um, they were everything from my my father um, 
really worked for the city of Pittsburgh as, an, as the operating engineers and, and ran that section for the city for a long while and then went back into the mills to help me uh, get through college. Awesome. Mom stay at home? Mom was a stay at home mom, but before that, she had been a librarian for U.S. Steel. She had a photographic memory and an Irish temper. So she was the ideal mom. <laughs> <laughs> I she love was, that. Uh, Brothers and sisters. I had one brother, my brother, Jeff, who was a comedian. He was father malarkey on the radio and he was a very active guy. He died about 15 years ago, unfortunately. And I have a sister, Jill, who's my baby sister, about nine years younger than me. She, uh, she works for the city of Pittsburgh right now for city council. What were some of the early lessons that, uh, either mom or dad, uh, uh, you know, kind of taught you at an early age that perhaps if you look back, you know, set you on the course to your success in a career? My mom and dad were, um, were very much follow your dreams. Um, they never held me back. They, um, they encouraged education, they encouraged my involvement in, in activities. And I think the most important thing is I had a huge variety of aunts and uncles and they really encouraged involvement with them. And because of that, I really learned at a young age how, how to be part of a group and, and, and how to maneuver with adults with various backgrounds. I mean, it was amazing that, you know, our, our kitchen table on a Sunday, he would be around, dude, everyone from the chief of police to the, to, to a garbage man. Um, it, and, and so, <laughs> and they were all, family they were, all, the it, they were family or friends and there were always people and, and dinner conversation was always encouraged on a variety of different subjects. So from politics to, to what the economy was like to, to just day-to-day um, mundane issues. It was, uh, it was a wonderful way to grow up. Pretty cool. Yeah. 300 families. I mean, that's uh, oh, yeah, you couldn't get away with anything. Influence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Everybody knew who James was, right? Yeah. <laughs> or were you Jimmy I growing was, up? <laughs> I was known as Jimmy Mike and they still call me it here. You know, I, I moved back <laughs> to uh, Mount Washington about five years ago and uh, it's been interesting. Um, not much has changed and then a lot has changed. It's, uh, it's very different. Tell me about your school life. Were you a good student in school? Yeah, I was, I was more the nerdy type. I, um, I was, uh, I was very interested in, in history and English and reading and, uh, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, I went to a very small, uh, parochial school. In fact, my graduating class was 53 people. Um, the interesting mm-hmm. thing wow. about that is that that meant you had to be in everything from, you were, <laughs> you were right. in the band, you were going to be in the choir, you were going to be in the play, you were going to play, you know, basketball and football, you know, basketball, I played in the local football league here. I mean, you, you, we, they needed bodies, so you were going to be in it. And the, the good part of that was <laughs> you got to experience so much and you got to appreciate all the different things. So I remember the nuns even made us do ballroom dancing and then had us take a year of square dancing. It was, it was really different. <laughs> and if you're the odd man out and there were more more boys in the class. You had to dance with the other boy, well, we right? We were lucky. There were more girls than guys. So we were kind of, we were kind of lucky. It was a girls dance with the yes. girls. <laughs> I love it. Jesuit school? No, actually it was a pro, it was a parish school. So we had the Immaculate Heart nuns from Scranton. So you mentioned sports. What other kinds of outside activities? Any music, theater, uh, things that you did extracurricularly beyond them? I was very, very active in, in forensics and debate. And, um, and competed on a national scale one. And my community was incredibly supportive. I mean, um, was that all the way through high school or also college? That was all the way through high school. Um, you know, I, I, uh, it was, a it was a phenomenal experience. Um, 
that was afforded to me and and I think it it set the scale it set the stage for for my university years and the rest um it was because of it i I got a, a broad reach into meeting an awful lot of people and and to be perfectly honest, learned the value of having a good arts education. Um, I think a person needs to be well-rounded. Well, it teaches you how to argue, right? And as, as well as to think. Uh, I got involved in debate in college, and I wished I'd done it earlier. I encouraged my kids that are growing up. And, and you know, my dad, my, my son would say, yeah, but dad, I've got to take different positions. And say, well, that's good. You know, you have to understand both sides because you're not always going to be right. <laughs> right. And it, it was interesting to have to argue both sides because... You really got to understand the viewpoint. And in these political times, it's really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, excellent. What about outside of class um, uh, with regards to entrepreneurial things? Uh, you know, did you have the ubiquitous paper route? Well, they, it, in those times, they had uh, junior achievement. And I, uh, I remember I was president of my companies I, in, in the three years that I was there. For, I was, uh, and then... My last year, I guess my senior year, I was the president of the President's Association, which was all the presidents of the companies, they combined it. And I remember having to organize the socials and activities and all of that. And and uh, I was very happy because my business, um, two of those three years, won the top award for, for the gross sales and, and achievement. So it was, uh, it was a very good experience. And I don't even know, if, it's been a long time since I've been around junior achievement. I don't know if they're still active or not, but it was, it was very, I see that on resumes a lot. It was very helpful. <laughs> Did you actually, I mean, was there money that you were able to put in your pocket through that business? Um, yeah, but I mean, we're, you know, we were selling, I remember the one year we were, we made coat hangers, really thick coat hangers. We were, <laughs> our sponsoring company was us steel. So we were going to make something out of steel. So, Makes the most so sense. it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I also, you know, I had done everything from scouting was, uh, an altar boy for the diocese. I had, um, you know, the United Nations, I mean, you name it, I, I was involved in it. And, um, and, and so my high school was, was very fulfilling. I also had three jobs and, um, I was, uh, I worked in a grocery store. I cut the grass for my parish, my church. And I, believe it or not, I worked at Snuffy's Exxon and, uh, pumped <laughs> gas and, Pumping and gas, changed right? tires. And, um, and then I had, and then on holidays, I would deliver for the local forest called Wallace Forest. And a really funny thing happened to me. In fact, this year I, I went in there and, um, and Mrs. Wallace was there and I walked in. And of course, it's been a long time. And, you know, she's she's uh, she's up there now. And she looked at me and said, hey, you know, uh, Mother's Day's coming up. Are you going to be free? We're going to need help delivering. And I thought, well, <laughs> well, it never changes, you know. That is awesome. Yeah, she looked at you at that 12, 13-year-old you were back yes. then. Oh, that's cool. And, um, uh, you know, the, was the money kind of used for savings? Were you encouraged to, you know, this is set aside for college or, you know, fun money, so to speak? My children couldn't believe when I would tell them that every dime I made, I handed the check to my mother. And my, and uh, it was just the rule of the house. Mom handled the money. And, and my mom and my aunts, um, I had an aunt that lived with us and then I had an aunt who had no children who would raise my father. They, uh, they made sure I lacked for nothing. If I needed a buck, it was there, but I, I worked very hard and we kept track of it and, um, it was the way it worked. And it went into the, went into the communal pot. Yeah. Very interesting. Cool. And was college kind of a foregone conclusion? It sounds like dad as an engineer 
oh, there was no question that I was going to college. I, I, I think they would have, they would have, uh, they would have uh, tortured me if I didn't go to college. It was, and and <laughs> in my family, I was the the only one. Um, and so brother and um, sister did not. Yeah, I had, um, I had an an uncle who had he was pretty successful who had made a deal that with my family that if I uh, if I went to Duquesne University where he had went and I would walk to school every day like he did, he would pay the tuition, but it had to be under that. And my parents wanted me to get out, go somewhere, learn new things. But, you know, that was an offer you, 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 you couldn't pass up and the rest of it. All right, scholarship, and, you can't. <laughs> and we had a pastor in our church who was called Monsignor Nora, who my family called the commander, who was bigger than life. He was, he was kind of my mentor and, and really helped me throughout my life. And I'll never forget, it was the end of May. I'm thinking I'm going to Duquesne. And he walked in and he said, congratulations, you've been accepted at, at Villanova. And I went, I didn't apply. And he said, I did for you. And, you know, to, to a Catholic family in Pittsburgh, Villanova is, is the Harvard of the parochial schools, the, the Catholic schools. And, and it was like, he just sat there and said, we're going to have a plan. That's where he's going. And to me, it just opened a world for me. I mean, Villanova was a phenomenal institution. And uh, um, not only does it play basketball, but it, I, I got it you know, for <laughs> basketball, but it was a, a very, very solid place. And the friendships I made there are still as strong now as they were when I was in college. So you went there all four years? Mm-hmm. Wow, fantastic. I would advise anyone or young entrepreneurs that those friendships that you make early on are the ones you carry for your career. And to me, the most valuable lesson that I've learned in life is you know, I, I, I often talk about my best friends and I have, I have a number of them who know I, who, when there's trouble, circle the wagons. And, and to me, that's a, that's a key component. No, that's, uh, that's so true. And again, a, a very common thread that we've seen through a lot of these CEO interviews, those, those lifetime friends. Um, so work, working during college, I mean, w- with, with the scholarship, quote unquote, that you received, is you still, uh, I, my father, um, because of my family's, um, who were very active in the Democratic Party and, and the like, were able to help me get some really I, interesting summer jobs. I, I, I think there was one I did for two years that I was probably laid the framework for any understanding I had about leadership. I, uh, I actually worked on a road crew that, and shoveled asphalt off the back of a truck. And there was a guy called um, the, the foreman. His name was John Lynch. To this day, the most incredible leader I've ever met. Um, this is a simple group that there were guys who worked the dump truck. There were those of us who shoveled. There were the rakers and there was the heavy equipment operator that was on the roller. There were 11 of us in the crew. And we would have gone to hell and back for him. It was <laughs> He was the crew boss. He was, he was, the, he was the crew, he ultimate was, crew boss. Well, he was, he, he was there for you. He, he taught you lessons in a, in a simple job. It was, it really was, um, it really taught me a lot about leadership. I mean, it, it. Well, it's backbreaking work too, James. I mean, that was gotta, gotta been a tough summer. It was, it was so what really were some hot, of the things? But, and, but it was really strange. You, <laughs> you were, you were repairing potholes and every time you did a good one, you were looking up to have John give you that thumbs up. Look, good job on that one. It was, he was just that kind of guy. And then, and then I also worked, um, for the County, uh, one, in the parks. I was a carpenter's laborer. And then 
I think my final year, which was the funny one, I was uh, I was a road inspector for the state. Um, again, working with asphalt and that, making sure that the proper chemical makeup was there and, and things were done. So, uh, well, you had some previous experience after filling all those bottles, you got it. right? So it You're really right. was. Awesome. <laughs> how did you uh, kind of make the decision about what you you know did? How did you pick a major? I guess in college, and you know what what did you um, study? I will never forget. I mean, I, I this is a this is a true story. I, I my first class, I had for some reason I had um, Monsignor had suggested and others that I study economics. And remember, I went to this small parochial school, and I, I sat in on the first class. I'll never forget, Brent. And it was, and the and the subject was complete complex matrices of linear triangles. I started to laugh. I have never forgotten <laughs> this topic my whole life. I just walked out and I laughed, and I thought, "Oh my god!" And um, I ended up. I was. I what what had happened was I was brought in on a on a partial scholarship to be on the debate team, which was really the thing that made the difference. And, and, um, and I, I switched to political science and no big surprise. Yeah. (laughs) And I I have to say that I, I had such a wonderful time learning things that I wanted to learn. And luckily for me, the, the political science department there was not was very focused on the human aspects of politics as opposed to the to the metrics and i i think it was very helpful to me it also uh, that education taught me an awful lot about writing i think i i think that skill the writing skill is so critical yeah and i i think very few people learn how to think when they write what was um, the first job you took out of college james i actually was in your business i my first job was a, as a headhunter for an executive search for a company called Specialty Consultants in Pittsburgh. And they specialized in the real estate and construction and the shopping center industry. And the shopping centers were then booming. And um, I would have to tell anyone that the the years that I spent there was probably the best selling experience you could ever have. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, you know, you not only have to sell the person to the company, but the company to the person and then you got to get your check. And, and it really was a phenomenal experience to be in my 20s trying to place people in their 40s, 50s, 30s, et cetera. And it really taught me a lot about communication. It taught me a lot um, about how important honesty is in selling, um, which I think can be a lost art. Um, and it really set the groundwork for me to understand how to do creative deals because that's a business where creative deals are important. <laughs> You've summed it up pretty good, James. <laughs> yeah. And then what, what attracted you to that? Was it uh, part it of the, job. The, the, the Nolan family? Uh, or it was, was, a, just it was a an job? uncle who knew the guy who owned the company and they were looking for recruiters. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, there was a recession going on at the time and try having a political science degree with a recession. Um, so, and, and I did really well, actually. Um, I got very lucky because I, centered on something called um, the people that lease the space in, in shopping malls. And there was a guy who, I can't even remember his name, I think his last name was Kaplan, and he had a thing called the Retail Vacancy Reporter. And I got him to allow me to do a column, and it went to all the leasing people. And I got really well known because I put comedy in it. Um, um, because I was in the radio in college and, and did comedy. And and, well, and Father Malarkey, yeah, exactly. right? It's in my family. <laughs> and so it enabled me to get the kind of contacts, but I, I knew I wanted to do something else. 
And believe it or not, Brent, it was uh, I, I my church bingo. I happened to be, um, I was one of the volunteers that would work this because uh, of the of um, the church I was in. And there was a man there, um, his name was Al Liska, and he was a division head for Dow Chemical. And he came to me and he said, hey, I, you're in the employment business. We're really gearing up and looking for something different in the pharmaceutical side of Dow. Would you help us recruit? Because all the employment agencies in Pittsburgh were basically going out of business because of the recession. And I looked at him and on the way home, I kept thinking, and I'll never forget, there was a woman called Mrs. Grush. She had twins that were friends of mine. She was the librarian in Mount Washington here where I grew up. And I went to her and she ordered books from the main library and we read about Dell Chemical and I studied it. And I called Al Liska. I looked at the pharmaceutical industry. I called Al Liska and I said, I, I, uh, I have a candidate for you. Let me tell you about him. And when I was done, Al Liska said, this guy sounds great. Why can I talk to him? And I said, you've been talking to him for the last 20 minutes. And that's how I that's got great. I got into to Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, which was a division of Dow. Did you get some leadership responsibilities early on then? And Al was a phenomenal mentor and a wonderful, wonderful man. And, you know, the selling skills I had gotten in the other business, but understanding the discipline of a, of a national company and a discipline that it takes in pharmaceuticals, Al was phenomenal for that. And then um, I was very lucky. Um, a, a number of just having the right mentors at the right time, I became a, a product manager for Dow. Which was which was um, which was at the right place at the right time in the right way, and still in your twenties, I would imagine. Yes, I at that was, time. and and it just it just all took off, and um, and I ended up um, not only in in major project management roles, but I, I had a lot of assignments because the senior executives of the company found that I was a, a good guy to to be number two when they needed it to do things. So, you know, I, I was on the Japan team. We went to Japan. I was, I spent time in, in Europe. Um, and then the thing I, I really became the, a conduit between R and D and the business. And I worked for a guy called Jerry Bell, who was, um, one of the leaders in our industry. And he was an incredible mentor. He and, and Jim Moore were just phenomenal. Um, to me and really taught me a lot. And I went up through the ranks of Dow and it was, it was, I was at the right company at the right time in the right way. You could use creativity. It was a time when the regulations were not, there was, there was a, a dignity to the business that, um, back in those days that were really great. It was a great time to really learn it. But the good thing was I first had to prove myself at the, uh, at the selling level. I mean, so it wasn't just, I wasn't one of those, you're going to spend six months in the field. I spent time in the field, proved myself, won the awards, and, and that got me in, the, that, that, that really got me the opportunity. Awesome. How many years were you at Dow, James? Six, I think. Around six or seven, I guess, somewhere around And uh, do you remember the first time you started managing people? I assume it was probably there, right? Yeah, I, it was there. Um, I was a, uh, a division manager at one point in, in Detroit, Michigan, believe it or not. And, um, it was a very diverse group. And it was uh, it, it was a good group of people in a good way. And then during that period, I um, um, because I, I, it was one of those things I had to have that box checked. And then I got asked to um, I got asked to go to uh, 
I got recruited away to a company called AnaQuest. Mm -hmm. And in that position, I, I was in charge of all the, the marketing of North America. And, um, and it was part of British Oxygen. Everyone's a lot of career mistake. That was mine. Um, <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it, it really taught me a lot about, op, about hospitals and hospital selling and the OR and, of course, the anesthesia and the rest. But it also shot, taught me what really poor bad management is. I mean, it was, uh, it really was not, a at my time there, a well-run organization at all. I, What's one of the worst lessons you learned, <laughs> right? Sometimes we observe some of those things in our career and, uh, they can be some of the most, uh, what, what I learned is you don't make a move for money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should have learned that a long time before, but that that's one part. But the second part is if you're not a hundred percent confident in the person you're reporting to. And you believe that you know more than he does, and you really understand that, so you're not going to learn from him. Don't take the job. What about management experiences? You know, some of the lessons from those, and, and particularly managing and developing people. What are some of the things that uh, you recall from those early years? I think the first thing is um, there's a real fine line between friendship and leadership, but there has to be friendship. There has to be a trust level, and it's really important that your people trust you for your honesty. And that's difficult because, you know, Dow and most companies have some form of rating and ranking. And, um, and people had to learn to trust me. Um, and I had to learn to trust my people. And, and that's a hard lesson to learn. I mean, you can't, you can't just take a, an employee for, for face value. Um, you have to really get to know them and really believe whether they're doing the job or not. And you also have a responsibility to train people. Um, even someone that you think is experienced can still learn new things if you're creative. And I think that those are the lessons that I learned. I also learned that there's a certain discipline. Um, I never, I never asked people to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And the other thing that I learned in a very strange way is I'll give you an example. If, if we had a, a, a banquet and we had people at a small banquet, I would wait till everyone got their food before I get in that line. Simple little things people notice and makes it, and make a difference. And the other thing I learned at Dow, um, we had a we had the, the the VP of marketing sales. His name was John, and a, and one of the things that I had to do, I was kind of a a scribe for him for a thing because there was a morale problem at a point. And what he did is he met with every single employee of the headquarters, 10 to 15 people at a time. And he said, I'm here to, under, to ask you, what can I do to help you do your job? But don't talk to me about compensation or insurance. Talk to me about other stuff. <laughs> and right. it, was the, Things I can influence. it was the most valuable lesson because what I learned is if you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. We mentioned your bio, you're, you're running a fund and, and CEO of, uh, in Clinica. Is, now, has this been your first CEO position or was there something previous to that? Tell us a little bit about that. I, uh, for almost 20 years, was the CEO and president of the Institutes of Pharmaceutical Discovery, which was a, a major private biopharmaceutical company with, um, with four divisions. We serviced the pharmaceutical industry. We worked only on a contractual basis. We were a private company. We never uh, we never sold stock. We uh, we 
we started we started the company and i i think it was um it was pretty significant we started the company with um 40 million dollars from two pharmaceutical companies and neither of them took a share of stock um it was so it was you were a founder you were a founder, I was that a founder and the ceo um i had been with wyeth for a number of years in the international and R&D capacity. And at Wyeth, I did, you know, the, my real job at Dow that I really enjoyed and, and discovered I had a sort of a knack for it is uh, is uh, the business of science. And I got a pretty good understanding of what it took to, to pick and put good solid products on the market. And at Wyeth, that, that just took off. And then I got this opportunity. I was asked by... Uh, these two CEOs from these two companies, what I consider they wanted, one was French and one was Japan, and they wanted to put an organization together to really bring them the creativity from the United States. So I took part of my team from Wyeth that I was very tight and had built, and I made them an offer that I thought only, I I didn't think in a million years anyone would take it, and they took it. (laughs) Um, And so we were able to start that company. We based it in Connecticut because my one of my par- one of my partners in it, I, I had the majority was uh, was a very experienced financial executive, and and he lived in Connecticut, and I lived in suburban Philadelphia. He was on the shore, so guess who was moving? Uh, and we, well, now that explains the two hundred three area code. I was wondering yeah, about that. So that so <laughs> I, we we our our laboratories were in uh, were in Brantford, but um, I lived in Guilford, and um, we had. Um, we really were the state of the art. I mean, we worked for numerous companies during our time period there. We had the Institute of um, IDD, the Institute of, of Drug Discovery. We had um, a spinoff of that called the Institute of Diabetes Discovery. We had the largest diabetes lab in the country at the time. We started, uh, I think, very early on. It was one of those kind of things we didn't plan, but the Institute of Bioanalytics, where we did assay development for you name the company, we worked with them. And when they had problems in that area, we would troubleshoot and do the work. And then we did an Institute of Consumer Health where we did, um, where we kind of became, but we did rescue clinical trials and that's how we got the CRO experience. We started helping people that had problems with their products and dealing with it. The CRO industry was just at its infancy and you get companies that had difficulties and we'd go in. And that's when a number of, major family investment groups found us. So um, uh, it started with um, an offshoot of the Annenberg family, and we did um, um, trucklogger products for them. The Greer's Dorns came in, and, that, and we did uh, CarryFlex and work for them. And then um, the Mars family found us, and we, were, we helped found Mars Symbioscience for the Mars family, which is, um, which is an extraordinary company and wonderful people that really wanted to see um, and take a look at in their product line things that they could really work on that would would be beneficial to humans and to companion animals and and that was a long-standing um, incredible assignment with some wonderful people James you you've had a lot of experience building companies this and obviously in your current role to, to share us your thoughts a little bit about building a company culture and the importance of that I think building a company culture is becoming a lost art I think um, because it's got to start with people that, A, um, from the very beginning, we, we, have a, we have a meeting once a year where the senior team look at every single employee and say, 
who belongs on the bus and who belongs off the bus. And, and, and we have been very, very careful to make sure we're not looking for yes people, but we're making sure that there are people that can work with us, that are open, that'll, that'll work in teams. And we take a very, very strong look at that. They've, you know, one bad apple can, in an entrepreneurial environment can ruin everything. And if it, especially when you're dealing with science, because you may have someone that everybody says, oh, there's no way we could do this without them. And, and what we found over the years is, yeah, you can. <laughs> if <laughs> they don't, not the right if they don't fit in, uh, you've got to make the change. Um, that's, that's the hardest thing. Does it start with, uh, James, does it start with kind of you as a founder or CEO having a vision um, with regards to what those kind of key principles are that form the culture? Do you find that it's more adaptive as you bring in the key people? You know, how do you kind of define company culture? I, I would love to sit here and say that I define it, but the truth is it either comes into being or it doesn't. And it all depends upon the mix of the people that you put in your squad. Um, and to me, you've got to make sure that the key players that you're using are the kind of people that really want the company to succeed and the venture to succeed. And yeah, everybody has their own individual gains and wants, but you, you've got to make sure they're not the kind of people that will put a knife in someone's back as they go to climb. And, uh, and to me, that's the culture I, I try to set. I mean, we've got a, we've got a common goal. Let's make it work. That's a good segue into the next question, which is, James, what, you know, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Creativity and intelligence. Hmm. And creativity to me is number one. I used to ask an interviewing question, you know, do you have a sense of humor? Prove it. <laughs> Tell me a good joke. Yeah, it was, and, and I, I would say not a joke. Tell or me a story. And because most of the creative people I know are the first ones that could tell stories about themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of look at the person and I, I listen to their story. I mean, you, you really have to pay attention to their story. So when I would go to interview um, people in Europe, I would inevitably, we would meet in London and I would say, why don't we have lunch with Oscar Wilde? <laughs> and instead of taking him to a restaurant, I take him in the train station and they have this sandwich shop called the Upper Crust, uh, where they make sandwiches out of baguettes. And I grab a baguette and a soda and have them do the same. And we'd sit near Oscar Wilde's statue. It immediately would throw them off. And it was interesting to see how some people reacted to that and how other people reacted. And the people that took it in stride and smiled about it and were great, I found ended up being the, the better people in the long run. May sound like a little simple thing, but... Um, they weren't ruffled by it or, or right. had other expectations. It, you worry about the people that in a crisis get ruffled, get angry or frustrated. You, you want Take the them out of their setting say, Let's and think our way they panic. This. Um, I, I've, I've always been lucky to have teams around me that during the bad times, they'd circle the wagon. And, and that's important. Well, James Nolan, you've been very, very generous with your time. We're just coming up on our last uh, question here. And this is something we ask all the CEOs, you know, kind of at the end. And, you know, again, remembering our middle market audience folks that, you know, are maybe a, a decade or two behind you in their career. And, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to them to, you know, uh, perhaps if they've got their eyes set on their own corner office to become a CEO or perhaps even an entrepreneur like yourself and founding their own company? What, what are the two or three things that you think are important when you look back at your career that you'd you'd be a be a mentor on or advise someone that uh, maybe has those same aspirations probably three things the first is start building your team 
the minute you decide that's what you want to be. I mean, my COO has been with me since 1989. I mean, build, start building your team. Realize the relationships of the people that, that you want with you. If you look at my organization, you'll see that um, the key people have been with me for a long time. I, I, I've, I've been through things with them. I know them and I trust them. The second thing is um, be sure you vet the potential competition that you're going to have. So many people say, this is a great idea. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs that I meet because now we're dealing with you know venture capital and looking at this too. They've got great ideas, but they've never really looked at their competition or the, the look they've been is, is, is not great. You really need to vet your competition. And the third thing that I would advise them is, um, you know, enjoy it. If it's a job, you're not going to be able to be successful as an entrepreneur or a court in office. It has to be something you love doing. I mean, I love going to work every day. I love, I, I love what I do. And if you don't, if you're not going to love it, if you're doing it because it's going to be be a means to another end, I, I would say then you haven't found the right passion. It's the journey, not the job. Exactly. James Nolan, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed hearing your story today. Really enjoyed it. And Brent, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.